So tonight we are going to be continuing our series on Jesus. We've been asking a bunch of questions on the person of Jesus, and today we're going to be asking the question of who do we follow? So pray with me, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for meeting with us here today. Thank you for bringing everyone here and um, together as we gather, building your church and um, putting your Holy Spirit in our midst. Jesus, I pray right now that you would continue to draw us close to you, that you would um, have me say the words that you would have me say today for the glory of your kingdom alone. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, who do you follow? The reason why we're asking this question today is because all of us will follow someone or something. It's not that we're wondering if you will follow Jesus or would you like to follow Jesus, but we're actually asking, who are you following in general? All of us will follow someone. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a teacher. Maybe it's a sports hero. Maybe it's a celebrity or a politician. I'm just kidding. I know none of you are following politicians, but somebody like that. And you are all of us together. We will all choose to follow someone or something. We will model our life after that. We will take notes and clues as to whether or not we should dress a particular way, what words we should say, um, how we should behave, who we'll be friends with, who we will not be friends with. We all do this. But today we want to ask the question, who do you follow? And perhaps we want to just tease you with the possibility of saying yes to Jesus. Now, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. uh Uh-oh, that happened. I didn't mean that to happen. All right, there we go. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. If you'd like to read along, we have Bibles in the Black Blue Bibles Miss Ginger has for us. Um, You're welcome to grab one along, or you can read on your fancy phone. I know many of you are very high-tech. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18, and it reads as follows. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, and they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. We're going to stop right there for just now, and we'll continue on through our text. What was it that as Jesus walked up to people who were fishing and clearly not sitting in the synagogue that afternoon, although they'd probably done that several times, but they're simply fishing. What was it that when Jesus walked up and said, come follow me, that they went, yes, awesome, and dropped everything, their livelihood, everything they knew, every, every skill set they had, the way to pull a fish out of a net, the way to drop a net down, where to and when to do that so you would catch the most fish, everything in their livelihood. What was it that Jesus said that made them drop everything and follow him. What do you think that was? When I was growing up, the picture in my head, and I've mentioned this before to some of you, was the Looney Tunes Bugs Bunny picture. 
where Bugs Bunny like sees the genie in the lamp kind of thing. I don't remember there was a Daffy Duck involved. It was it was sketchy. And um, at that point, it was like you know, yes, master, yes. And the eyes start to oscillate. Those of us who grew up on Looney Tunes, and yes, I know I'm dating myself, but that's just yeah. I'm actually dating Kevin, but I'm just telling you about how old I was. So, so. Looney Tunes kind of like, yes, master. That's the picture I had because I could not conceive of any scenario where it would be okay for me to leave my parents with work and go and do something else. That, that didn't seem like that would have flown in my household. So, you know, with like, hey, sorry, mom, my friend just came up. They knocked on the door. They said, come out and play. So I dropped the garbage can that I was taking out, and I went with them. Like, that's not, that's not going to work. So what was it in Jesus? And so I kind of thought, it must be this tractor beam, this, like, complete, you know, tractor beam pull of bringing you in and saying, come, follow me. And the people, yes, and then they go, right? And so if you've had that picture in your head, anybody else have that picture in your head growing up? Yay, two people. I'm not alone. The rest of you apparently are very educated, and that's fantastic. So maybe you had some other explanation. Maybe um, Jesus, you know, promised them the stars and the moon and some wealth or whatever it was that you had involved. Or maybe you just never thought about it at all. And it was just something you grew up with and said, when Jesus says, go, you go. But that's not really true because not everybody went and not everybody chose to follow. So what was it? Well, this picture right here is a picture of the 4th century A.D. remains of a synagogue in Capernaum, which was Jesus' hometown after he moved from Nazareth to the shores of Galilee. It's right along this beautiful lake here, right there in the Sea of Galilee region. And up in this particular area, there are three primary cities, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. And those three cities were religious Jews were living where synagogues were and where people, and synagogues were actually throughout all of Galilee and Judea, um, but we found a large number of synagogues in this Galilee area. In fact, just recently, um, right here is the town of Migdal, where Mary Magdalene is from, Mary from Migdal. It means tower. And right here, they found another first century synagogue that they're excavating right now. And you can go and peer through a chain link gate and go and take a look. So in this area, there were synagogues and there was a rabbinic system in place. And I want to invite all of us to travel back in time and start to experience a bit of what that rabbinic system would have looked like. So to that end, I'm going to have um, each group, each side, I think we have enough. If not, you know, share with somebody you really love. And um, grab one honey stick and just hold it for a few minutes. And then I'll tell you what to do with it when we get there. So pass them on back and then to the tables. Make sure everyone has a honey stick. And let's take a few moments to dive back into the rabbinic period, back into the time of Jesus 2,000 years ago, and try to understand what the rabbinic educational system was like in Jesus' day. Because perhaps that will inform that question I'm asking, and when Jesus walks up and says, come, follow me, and they drop everything and go, why on earth would they do that? And why wouldn't the father be yelling, get back here and pick up your nets, right? Why isn't that happening? Let me understand a little bit more. 
So as we go back in time, we're going to hang out in this synagogue area of Capernaum particularly because that was Jesus' hometown. And this is an artist's rendition of what we think that looks like. So here's a cross section of it. Over here would have been the school area. In here is the primary location where they would study. And this is particularly fun for those of us in Spark because you're actually sitting in a synagogue right now, in case you didn't know. So... In case you didn't know, this is a synagogue. It's called Etz Chaim, and Spark rents space here on Sunday afternoons, and we're friends with the rabbi because we're hip like that, and that's fun. And, and so we, he has said, yes, you can rent space from us. And so here in this synagogue, like in synagogues of that day, back here, and you can come and peek later when I can pull the screen up, there is a Torah closet, or the ark, and back there, they would have sort of set into stone, and you can find this in different synagogues um, in Israel today, a place where they've made a little closet where they would put the scrolls of the Torah and the other scrolls that are in the Old Testament as well, our Hebrew scriptures, and those scrolls would sit there. And then whenever we wanted to study those, then they would be pulled out by the synagogue attendant, the Hazan, and that person would help unroll the scroll and find the place that we were supposed to read that day. Because in Jesus' day, they were on a Torah reading cycle of going through the entire Torah in about three years. Today, in Judaism, everyone reads through the Torah within a one-year period. And it begins every fall, and by the fall again, after this community, the Jewish community here, has gone through all of the Torah and reading through it together, they will have a celebration of the Torah, the Simchat Torah, and everyone will get to dance with the Torah, and it'll get passed around, and it's beautiful and wonderful, and you should go sometime, and um, it's fantastic. So at that point, then, they start again. They finish the last portion of the year, and then they begin again, that celebration of God's word. So the word of God takes a huge prominence in the center of that community. In Jesus's day, we don't all have our own pocket Torahs, you know, in our Bible book, you know, pull them out on our smartphones. They didn't have smartphones 2,000 years ago. I don't know if you knew that, but it's true. And so they didn't have smartphones, and they couldn't just look those up. So together as a community, they would come and study. Every synagogue would have a school Every synagogue would generally have a mikvah, that ritual cleansing we talked about when we um, had that uh, message we preached a few weeks ago called How's the Water? That ritual cleansing pool, so in case you had an issue of uncleanliness, you could get ritually cleansed before you would go in and study and handle the word of God. Now, in Jesus' day, and then subsequent afterwards, there had become, at that point, the beginnings of an educational system, the beginnings of a structure of which to study these things together and to kind of help raise up the children. In fact, the children were the most important people in the community. An ancient text from the Mishnah, which is sort of equivalent, about two, three hundred years written down after the time of Jesus, but oral Torah, um, the oral traditions of that being told around the time of Jesus, they say this, school children may not be made to neglect their studies even for the building of the temple, and the world endures only for the sake of the breath of school children. And what's fascinating is when you go to Capernaum, not only does Capernaum, Jesus' hometown, have a school, but it's the largest school that's ever been archaeologically discovered. So what we know from that is that Jesus is kind of hanging out at the Harvard Ivy League kind of system of his day. It's not a small school. It's a big school where a ton of people can gather together. 
and can sit and study the text. That's what the archaeology is telling us. Now let's continue to go back again a little bit and try to understand what their mindset was for education. One great scholar who just passed away about five, six years ago in Israel, Shmuel Safrai, says this, the regular upkeep of the schools in the first century period, time of Jesus, was considered to be the secret of the existence and the strength of the nation as a whole and of every single settlement. So this scholar, this modern scholar, says that the reason why the Jews existed was because they made this the priority, the education of their school children. Josephus says the same thing. He says that we exist for the education of our kids. We are existing in order to make sure that they are told the story. And for those of you who've read through some of your Bible, some of your text, you've seen do not let this word of God depart from your mouths. As you walk along the road, teach this to your children. When you celebrate the Passover and your child asks you this question, tell them when we were slaves in Egypt. Throughout the Psalms, throughout the entire Bible, there is an incredible honor given to the passing down of this story to the generations to come. So if you're wondering why at Spark we like having the kids in the room with us, and we don't really mind if they're a little bit loud and they ask some questions. In fact, it's encouraged. It's because we're trying to understand what it would have been like as a community of God's people 2,000 years ago and today to fully embrace the study of the Torah and then the passing down of it to the person coming along next. Isn't it true that you learn more when you have to teach it to somebody? Have you ever had to teach something? And how much more do you study it when you know you have to transmit it to someone else? Right? A ton more. If you're just relying on yourself, it's different. You just kind of say, like, I think I know that somewhere in the back of my head. I can look it up later if I want. But when you're passing it down to someone, you get it right. And so they focused highly on knowing and understanding the story and passing it down to the next generation. William Barclay, who is a scholar here, a biblical scholar here in the U.S., says it this way. It would not be wrong to say that for the Jew... The child was the most important person in the community. That's the educational system of Jesus' day. Isn't it cool? Let the little children come to me. Yeah, we got this kind of awesome stuff going. So at the time when you were born, you'd be raised in your family's home, and, and you would be learning how to do all the stuff that you do before you're about, you know, five, six years old. But before the age of six, this is what the Talmud tells us, the Jewish writings after the time of Jesus, a few hundred years, says, before the age of six, don't accept any pupils, but from that age on, you can accept them and then stuff them with Torah like an ox. So at age six, you would start to go to that synagogue school on a daily basis, most scholars believe. It wouldn't just be like, you know, Sunday school, you go one day a week. It would be that you would be going and studying regularly the text. And on that first day of school, some scholars talk about how this is probably, maybe it goes back to the time of Jesus. We know for sure it goes back to the time of the 12th century in medieval Europe, maybe before. But they were talking about how they would take the kids and on their first day of school, they would set them before a slate and they would write the Hebrew scriptures or the alphabet in front of the kids. And on top of that slate, they would take honey and they would put honey on top of the slate and then say to the kids, taste and see that the word of the Lord is good. 
Psalm 119, 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So open up your honey stick. <laughs> Let's give it a bite. Maybe. Will it work? Oh, it worked. Molars. Use your molars. Mmm. That's what God's word tastes like. Sweet. Tasty. Molars. <laughs> Does it taste good? Now, in Jesus' day, there's no vending machines where you can go and pick Snickers, Butterfinger, Milky Way. I mean, this is the candy, the sweetness of his day. And if you get honey, like, what a treat. And so as we try to step back 2,000 years, just imagine, it's your first day of school, you're six years old, you've had plenty of time to play, and now your parents are wrapping you up in a prayer shawl because God's going to write his word on your heart. And the Torah scroll is wrapped in that shawl. And then you're carried to school and you have your first taste of what it's like to study God's word. It's sweet and it's good and it's delicious and you can't wait to go back. You know what it was like when you were a kid and like your grandparents snuck you a little bit of sugar? And you weren't allowed to have it like the rest of the time. Like you knew if you were at, ha- at your house and you had to ask your parents, can I have some of that sugar? They'd say no. But when you're at school that first day and then the rabbi or the instructor in front of you starts to put that honey on that slate and you get to taste, you're like, I love school. <laughs> and I love God's word. And from now on, every time I sit and study it, I'll have this taste in my mouth. So I encourage you, go home and open up the Word of God and remember the sweetness in your mouth and how God's Word tastes to you. So that first year, as you would then go into the synagogue and you would have that first day entering in, you would start your study. You would get the written teaching. You would learn the Torah. You would learn the Shema. You would learn about tassels on the prayer shawls for tzitzit. You would learn about the creation story in Genesis. And you would learn about purity laws in Leviticus. Because who better to learn the laws of purity than little children? So yeah, I know it's normal. Your Sunday school curriculum growing up definitely included the books of Leviticus, right? Like all those stories. That's what you've memorized. That's the word you've hidden in your heart, right? You can all quote to me right now. Can you all quote to me right now one verse from Leviticus? Actually, you can. Yeah. Love your neighbor. Woo! It's in there. Okay, good. Okay, so they would sit and study all of this, and they would master the Torah, meaning that boys and girls together studying would memorize the Torah. As in the first five books of Moses, what we call the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Do the Right Thing, Deuteronomy. So those five books, those are the books that get memorized and hidden in your heart. Now, not every student's going to be as gifted as the next, and some are going to very much more enjoy just that one time they went to honey, right, and had that good honey time. But, but this is what was taught, and this was the system in Jesus' day. After that, then, at that, that's called Beit Sefer. 
boys and girls together learning, the girls would go home and learn how to take care of the household, and the boys would continue and learn about, at Beit Talmud, the house of instruction or learning. Now, I know all of you women right now were like, wait, what? How come we have to go home and take care of the household? Because the women are the worship leaders of the home. And they have to learn how to cook and keep the home kosher, how to take care of the home in such a way that it maintains all of God's commands, when and what time they light the candles, how they prepare a meal, how they keep milk and dairy separate, how they keep those containers separate, how they make sure that the house is taken care of. And they become the worship leaders of them. How do you keep Shabbat? How do you keep all of the calendared holidays? When do we go down to Jerusalem? When do we stay home? All of that. They've learned all of that in that last school, and now they're going to go home and prepare to raise their children that way and become the wives and mothers. Now, you might think, but I love having a career. Amen. Praise the Lord. We don't live 2,000 years ago. Don't get all hung up on this, all right? They, the truth is that the women were honored and their role was honored in that community and society, okay? Now, as the boys continue on in their study, they're going to start to learn oral teaching, meaning... Do we say grace before a meal? Do some of you say grace before a meal? Do you say a prayer of thanking God? Great. That's oral teaching. That's oral Torah. Nowhere in your Bible is it commanded ever to say a prayer before you eat. It is commanded in your Bible to say a prayer after you eat. Read Deuteronomy. When you go into the land and you have eaten and you are satisfied, then make sure to stop and thank God. So that's the only time the prayer is mandated by God's word. But Jesus, when he's feeding the 5,000, he takes the bread, blesses what? Does he bless the bread? He blesses God for the bread. You don't bless an inanimate object. You bless God for the bread, and then he breaks it and eats. That's oral Torah. He's keeping an oral tradition during his day that said you should stop and, and take a moment and thank God before you eat. And he's saying a prayer that's said still today. It's so cool. So that would be oral teaching that they're learning. And then they would continue to memorize through the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. Yes, you heard me correctly. The rest of the Hebrew scriptures. My grandmother used to say that her favorite memory verse for Bible school when she was growing up was Jesus wept. And that was the one she just pulled out all the time, you know. Jesus wept, and I think she got a little bit of flack for just picking the verse that only had two words. But that was her favorite memory verse. When we talk about your word have I hidden in my heart, we're talking about a community that literally did that. They, they took God's words and memorized them and kept them within them. So these people, are, these young men or young boys are continuing to memorize the rest of the text, and they're also learning the art of questions. Do you remember when Jesus gets lost back at Jerusalem, and his parents can't find him. It's in, the, it's in the book of Luke. And he's going back there, and they can't find him, they can't find him, and they stumble across him, and they, what are you doing here? And he's talking with the teachers of his day in Jerusalem, and they were amazed at his many questions. So he's learned the art of questions, and he's engaging with the community, and he's engaging with that leadership. After that, if you were gifted, if you were really gifted, at the age of 12 or 13, if a boy, a boy would finish his studies at school, but if he was gifted and so inclined, he went on to a Beit Midrash to sit at the feet of the teachers of the Torah, of the law, with other adults who studied Torah in their spare time. So now, if you're 12, 13 years old, your studies are done, and you're going to go learn your family trade. 
So you're going to learn how to be a godly carpenter, or you're going to learn how to be a godly fisher person, or you're going to learn how to, you know, be a godly stone worker, all of those things. You're going to go and do that. But if you're particularly gifted, if you've been really able to memorize all of that text, and not just that, but when I say to you, how many birds are mentioned in the book of Genesis and in what order, and you just got that down. And you can have those kinds of levels of debate. Then you would continue to study regularly as your primary focus and goal, your primary pastime with other sages and teachers of the Torah. You would continue to memorize and study the Torah, seeking to understand, finish the rest of the scriptures, the whole of the Tanakh, the Torah, which is those first five books, the Nevi'im, the prophets, and the Ketuvim, Tanakh is how we, the Hebrew word for the Hebrew scriptures. And you would memorize the rest of that. So when Jesus, by the way, is engaging with people in his day, those Torah teachers, the teachers of the law, and he's having those conversations, they're having a debate that's a very learned debate. Because everybody who's speaking at that moment has it memorized. And not just memorized, but they've debated how do we keep it. Do we say the prayer? Do we not say the prayer? When do we say the prayer? How do you say the prayer? Do you say it when you get up? Do you say it when you go to sleep? Do you say it when you use the restroom? All of those things. They've figured all of that out, and they're having those kinds of levels of debate. If the boy showed further ability and willingness, he might even, after some years, go to one of the famous stages and stay with him for a number of years. And this is the rabbi-disciple relationship that we see in our Gospels. The word in Hebrew for disciple is talmid. Say talmid. In plural, it's talmidim. Talmidim. Good job. That kind of intimate relationship would then start for those young men. Now, Shmuel Safrai says it this way. Study, though, by itself does not transform a student into a disciple. There were subjects which could not be systematically studied or explicitly enunciated, and subtle spiritual matters could be learned only by participating in the master's life. Isn't that true? Aren't there things that your parents never verbally spoke to you and taught you, but you learned by watching? Remember that story? There's this great story about this woman who every time she would prepare a roast, she would cut off one side and the other side on the roast and then stick it in the oven. And then later on, they're like, why do you do that? She's like, because my mom did that. And why did she do it? Well, because her mother did it. And it turned out that their oven was small, right? And you just learn to do things a particular way. And you may or may not know the reason why you're doing it. You've learned it just because you've participated in your family's life. I can tell you in my family at Easter time, we have egg fights. Is that something normal in the rest of these households? I don't know. But in my family, that's very normal. And growing up, I was sure the rest of you probably did that. That seems like a good Easter activity. Now, let me just clarify. It's not like random, like just launching of hard-boiled eggs from one side of the room to the other. It's a very, there's a lot of strategy. You take your egg, you decide who you're going to match up with, and then it's one, two, three, smash, okay? And then whoever's egg survives that first battle can go on to continue to fight. And if, you know, one end, then you could do butts. Like, you could do the egg butts and flip the egg around and then fight again. So, and of course, our grandparents used to sneak in the um, solid granite egg. Yeah, and just start crushing children's dreams right and left. It was great. 
So all of those things you learn simply by absorbing your family's life. And so at this point, the rabbi discipleship system, this rabbi Talmudim system, what happens now is you participate in life together. You see what the rabbi does when the rabbi stands up, when the rabbi sits down, when the rabbi eats, when the rabbi sleeps, when the rabbi encounters somebody in need. When the rabbi goes to the bathroom, you watch and you observe those things. Things that may or may not be taught explicitly, but you absorb them. You stay with that person and you start to begin to play the biggest game of follow the leader you've ever played in your life. The Babylonian Talmud says it this way, He who teaches Torah to the child of another, it's as if he gave birth to him. And that teacher, rabbi, disciple, Talmudim model begins to be father-son. That intimate relationship that you would expect between a parent and a child is what is expected and experienced amongst people who are following rabbis. And so in Jesus' day and after, and this is from Perkeavot, which is the sayings of the fathers, it was said there was even a blessing from one of the rabbis that said, let your home be a meeting place for the sages, for the rabbis, the wise ones, and may you be covered with the dust of their feet and drink in their words as though you're very thirsty. Meaning that you would say, okay, rabbi, come to my house, please, honored one, Come sit, let us feed you. We want to hear what it is you have to teach. And then you would, as the rabbi would teach, sit at the rabbi's feet and listen and be covered in their dust. As they would walk along the road, you'd walk so close behind that the rabbi's dust would kick up and be covered all over you. So by the time you got home at the end of the day, you had to brush rabbi dust off of you because you walked that close. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi and drink in his words as though you're very thirsty. By the way, super fun. What's Mary and Martha's story about in Luke? It's always about how Martha's too busy and she's just worried about many things, right? Yeah, okay. Maybe also Martha's kind of upset that her sister is sitting at Jesus' feet. That's what the text says. That she's sitting at his feet. And Jesus' response to Martha is, Mary's chosen the better part. She gets to come and learn too. That phrase, sitting at the feet, is a phrase for being a disciple of a rabbi. So Mary there in that story is right alongside with the rest of the disciples. And later on, the Apostle Paul will say that he sits at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel because he was a student, a disciple, a Talmud of that rabbi. So that's the picture that we have in the first century of that rabbi discipleship system. So if that's true then, and you're playing the biggest game of follow the leader ever, what would it look like to us today if we followed Jesus like that? How do we figure out how to do that? We don't have a system like that. I mean, we don't, you're in a synagogue right now, but probably most of us here haven't really attended a synagogue. So we don't even know, we've never even seen really, maybe we'll have Rabbi Ari come sometime and open up the scroll for us and we can look at the Torah scroll. It's beautiful. This is why you have a text. It's because the people of God have been keeping it for us for thousands of years. And so all of us, we have no picture for this. We have no understanding. We'll do discipleship classes at our churches and it'll be like discipleship training, Wednesday nights, one hour, six weeks. That's great. But it's not what was happening in Jesus' day. 
So if you're expecting to walk out of a one-hour-a-week, six-week program, Simon Peter or the Apostle Paul, then that expectation should be lowered just a little bit. Because that's not the system that we're talking about. Now, I'll just start to confess that in my life, understanding, studying, and experiencing this system, this rabbi discipleship system, has changed and revolutionized my entire experience with Jesus. I've been following Jesus since I was a little kid. I can blessedly say that I don't know if I can ever recall a day where I didn't know that God loved me. I'm so thankful for that. That is the greatest gift ever. And when I was growing up, I liked church. I had a good time at church. And it wasn't because there was a bouncy house. It was, I mean, we had to sit like through regular service with my parents, right? We had Sunday school before. And then, I mean, I loved it. I had a great time. And when I was about 10, 11 years old, I was at Mount Hermon Redwood Camp. And I sat there by myself doing my quiet time, which was a brand new thing I'd never learned about before because I'd grown up Lutheran and we don't necessarily do quiet times. And it's, we're good stuff. But, you know, it's just quiet time. I was like, this is weird. And so um, I was like, okay. You know, so I took my Bible and I went and I sat and I sat by myself at the tennis court and I'm sitting there and I just had a moment and I said, I'm not in charge anymore. All right, God, you got it. And I could see myself as a little kid sitting at the corner where the white lines meet on that tennis court, and I'd crisscross my legs in such a way that one line was on, one knee was on one line, and the other knee was on the other line, had my Bible open, and I could see, I had this experience with Jesus where I could see what I looked like, and I said, yeah, you're big, I'm little, you're in charge, I'm not, everything I've got's yours. But I didn't know what that looked like. And so I went home, and I started reading my Bible more and trying to tell people about things I didn't really know anything about. And then I started trying to invite everybody to church, because that seemed like a good next step. And so that worked, and, and it was great. And it was a great time of growing in knowledge, and I was confirmed. And my best friend Leah was bat mitzvah, and she wanted to be a rabbi, and I wanted to be a pastor. And we could discuss and debate all this. But I did not understand what it really meant to be a disciple of Jesus. I mean, it was, I was figuring it out. And when Kevin and I got married, we were still figuring it out. It was great. I mean, but we are figuring it out. But then in 2003, and a few years before that, we started to study the first century discipleship system. We started to get a little bit of a picture of what it might have been like in Jesus' day. Just to put some, some flesh on the skeleton. Does that make sense? Like, just to try to get it a little bit more understood. And so in 2003, we went to Israel for the first time. And the guy that we went with, his name's Ray Vanderlaan, and he's our mentor. And when we met, when we went with him in 2003, he leads his tours like a rabbi with Talmudim. Now, he, he's a Christian guy, but he's studied for a long time in Jewish context, in yeshiva on the East Coast, and in Israel, and other places. So, so he said, if you want, why don't you participate in this picture for the two-week period? And I thought, great. That's him, by the way. So there's Ray, and this is the Sea of Galilee, and right down here is Capernaum. And so for those two weeks, Kevin and I decided, not because Ray's great, although Ray's a great guy, not because we were trying to be exactly like him, we just thought, okay, let's, we're given an opportunity to really experience first century discipleship, let's do it. So because I'm ridiculous, and, and Kevin's a little ridiculous too, we did. And for two weeks, we were like, follow the leader, right? If he didn't sit, we didn't sit. If, if, if he was still staying, we just stood there. Did he take his pack off? He didn't take his pack off. Just wait. Now, it's kind of, does it sound weird? It sounds a little weird. It does sound weird. But for me, the picture was constantly, if that were Jesus in my life, 
right now standing in front of me, would I want to follow him and imitate him? As Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Would I be willing to do that? So I just thought, I'm going to try Jesus as a spiritual discipline to follow you that hard and that fast for two weeks. Now, as we would follow, we'd be in a crowd like this. And for those of you who've come with us to Israel, if you're in towards the back of the line, that's kind of what it looks like, yeah? Just a lot of backs and then hats and then we're going and generally I'm up front and somebody's complaining I'm walking too fast. So um, up here somewhere is the leader. Now in Jesus' day and still today, rabbis will take their disciples for walks and everyone will clamor and they all want to get close to the rabbi. Remember the story with Jesus where they're sitting there clamoring and finding on the side of the road, hey, who's going to sit on his right? Who's going to sit on his left? And we think, oh, how ridiculous. Well, I think that's a good question. You know, if I were hanging out with Jesus, I'd be like, shh, I'm sitting next to him, right? Like, I mean, are we going to throw an elbow? It's Jesus for Pete's sake. Let's throw an elbow and try to sit next to Jesus. Don't pretend you'd be all holy. You'd be like, it's Jesus. I'm sitting next to him. So he's raised the dead. It's pretty awesome. Like, whether or not you think he's God, that guy's got something going on. I want to sit next to him. So all of the disciples are clamoring and wanting to be with the rabbi. And so the first couple of days we were in Israel, I was like, I'm doing that. I'm going to throw an elbow, and I'm going to be up front. Now, I have to tell you, I was the only woman. There are about four or five guys up front. Kevin was one, and everyone's clamoring. And then there's, like, generally a gap of about 15 feet before the next person. And then there's generally a huge clump in the middle of the line, and then a few stragglers towards the end. Now, those first few days, I could tell that the guys that did not know who I was and that I could bring it, we're up front thinking, <laughs> when will this woman get to the back of the line with the other ladies and sit and just walk and talk? And they, I could tell, you know, it, I don't think they were doing it to be mean, but I could just feel them kind of like edging, you know, me out. And then you kind of like edge in this other way and then it's like edging out. And about the fourth day, I was getting pretty upset. It's like, you know what? I'm tired of having to fight that hard to be up front. And then I'm thinking, but would I do that if it were Jesus? Would I be willing to fight that hard? And let me tell you just a little bit, as a woman in ministry, I've had to do that a little bit. Am I willing to fight that hard to get close to Jesus? Am I willing to push that hard so tomorrow morning when I wake up and I do not want to read the Bible because I am just not that into it that day, or when my neighbor's being particularly difficult and I don't really want to love my neighbor or my enemy and all of that, will I fight that hard to try to get close to the way of Jesus? And so I started asking that question, how hard do I have to fight? And so I remember that morning saying to Kevin as we were getting up and going again, like in the middle of, felt like you're getting up in the middle of the night, you've slept for three hours, you're going to hike another 15 miles, and really fast. And as we're getting up, I say to him, do you think the women in Jesus' day had to fight this hard? And all of a sudden I have this picture for the first century, I'm going, wow, those women are awesome. Because, and robes, right? Like I had hiking boots on and like goo packs and like ready to go with my water bottle on and robes. And they were, and 2,000 years ago, and they earned a spot at the feet of the rabbi. That's amazing and incredible. I was like, wow, those women are so. So we asked that morning, do you think the women had a tough time? Because I feel like I'm having a tough time. Absolutely. Keep fighting. Okay. So then we started to go up this hill. Now, this is the hill. I'm not joking, it's called Mount Arbel. And that morning, right after that revelation that women can be up front and they can fight hard, and, and Ray said yes, absolutely, and keep seeing the picture. And we're hiking up here, and about here, I'm like, this dude's crazy, and uh, I can't do it anymore. 
And so we get to this point, and at this point, for those of you who've gone, there's handholds in the rock, and you're kind of rock climbing. And I am huffing. It's just hard that day. I don't know if it's the jet lag or I just hadn't worked out enough, but I was huffing and puffing to try to get up there. And so I can hear the guys, like, Ray's there, I'm next. I should be right there next to him, but I have a gap because I'm exhausted. And I can hear the guys behind me, like, you know, like I'm holding them back. So I was like, fine, fine. So I pull over on, like, a ledge. Please go ahead, go ahead. And the guy behind me says, nope. We're waiting for you. You've earned it. Now, it took me four days, but I earned a spot up front. So I just want to tell you, if you're trying to follow Jesus, fight for it, follow him, don't give up. And the community around you will start to say, you've earned a spot here, and if you're starting to get tired, we'll wait for you. Jesus will wait for you, and we'll come together and we'll continue to follow. I also want to tell you that if you choose to answer this question, who will you follow? And you say, I will follow Jesus. If you choose Jesus, I want to let you know it's going to be difficult. It's not always going to be smooth sailing. This is Wadi David on the shore of the Dead Sea, of the Salt Sea. And when we hiked through this Wadi, it was hot. And I'm not talking about like today hot. I'm talking about 118 degrees hot. And I'm sitting there thinking, this brother's crazy. I'm not going one more step. I don't know what we're, because when you, it's a dry heat, but so is my oven. Um, so when, <laughs> when you go down into the wadi, it feels like you are baked clay, that you're just going to come out a perfectly baked piece of clay at the end. And so as we're walking, I'm thinking in my head, I don't care if that's Jesus in front of me. Jesus has lost his mind, and I'm going to pull off to the side of the road and take a break, and I'll catch up, but give me a minute. And as I'm thinking that, I'm like, okay, Danielle, just go a couple more steps, just try. And as I was doing that, I was like, okay. And I pushed forward, I went four more steps, and there was a breeze, and there was shade. And immediately in my mind, I thought, oh my goodness, how often do I do that with Jesus? How often am I walking that hard, difficult path of whatever it is that I'm going through at that time, and I'm like, you know what, Jesus, sorry, too hard. I know you're leading in this direction. I'm just going to pull off and wait, because I'm done following you. I need a break. And he's like, if you just keep following four more steps, I've got shade and a breeze. Don't pull off in the hot oven. Ah, pictures. Very helpful. You see how much stuff you learn. None of this was ever taught to me by the person in the front of the line. It was simply absorbed by participating in the system. And the last picture I want to show you is this picture. Kevin and I now, we're in Turkey, and we are in the same line, and we're hiking up. It was about four and a half miles up this hill to see something, honestly, I did not think was that impressive. And the entire hill up was gravel. And so, and it was hot. As you take a step on gravel, what happens? You roll back. So every step, I was like, seriously, I'm gaining ground, and I lose ground. I gain ground, and I lose ground. And I was so discouraged, and I felt like this guy's crazy, and I'm never going to get up this hill. So I said, honey, I need your help. And it was hot, and it didn't make at all sense to hold hands. And we held hands for four miles, and he got me up that hill. Now, it wasn't because Kevin pulled me, but there was something about just saying, I'll keep the pace with you. I'll walk with you. So if you're trying to follow Jesus and it's tough and you're starting to lose some ground, grab a hand. Take a hand. 
Let somebody walk with you on that journey. This is what we learn when we walk with Jesus as Talmudim, as disciples, that we're not alone and that Jesus is trying to pull us a little bit closer. So if you're thinking, maybe I'll say yes to this Jesus guy, I want to tell you that Jesus is trustworthy. You can trust him. He isn't a crazy guy leading you down a hot wadi when it's 115. He actually knows what he's doing. You can trust him. Jesus says this in Matthew, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Are you feeling weary or burdened? Jesus will give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That word yoke is a rabbi's interpretation of the text. That's what that word means. So this rabbi has this yoke, and this rabbi has this yoke. This rabbi is really tough. This rabbi is a little bit looser. That's called the yoke. Every rabbi had one. And Jesus says to the crowd, come follow me. My yoke is easy. You can do this. Jesus is trustworthy. He'll take care of you. I also want to let you know that it's not confusing to follow Jesus. It's tough, but it's not confusing. His commands are clear. John 15. As the Father's loved me, so I've loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be complete in you and your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Now, it's a clear, simple command. I'm going to say it's easy, but it's clear and it's simple, and you know how to follow. He continues, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Didn't we see that happen in the news this last week? In Texas and in Boston, people laying down their life for someone else, going into risky situations and trying to bring rescue there. Jesus says, greater love has no one of this to lay down one life for his friends. Of course, Jesus ultimately does that for all of us. And he says, you are my friends if you do what I command, and I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. But instead, and listen to this, guys, it's good news. Jesus calls us friends. He says, I have called you friends for everything I've learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus' way is clear and simple. It's not always easy, but it is clear, and we know what it is to follow him. And then lastly, I want to let you know that Jesus chooses us. John 15 says this, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. So that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love each other. Does Jesus choose his disciples? Yes. Go back to that beautiful story in Matthew chapter 4. And let's see if we can understand it a little bit. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, his brother Andrew. They're casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Who chose whom? Jesus chose them. And who does he choose? Does he go to the synagogue and choose the best of the best amongst the students? No, he chooses the guys that flunked out. He chooses the fishermen. He chooses the B team or the C team. 
goes there and he says, and don't forget, when I ask you to do this great and amazing thing, love one another. That the world will know that you are my disciples by your love. When I ask you to do that, don't forget, I believe in you. I believe you can do that. I chose you. You didn't choose me. I'm the rabbi that walked down to the water and said, drop everything, come follow me. And no wonder they did. And the father's probably like, get out the boat, go, go. That guy is amazing. He's the rabbi. I thought you flunked out, but turns out you can still get in. And that's incredible. And this guy's going to raise people from the dead and cure the lame and heal the sick and give the blind life and let the deaf hear. Go follow that rabbi. Be like him. Play follow the leader like him. And Jesus says, greater things than this you will do, and surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus chooses you. Isn't it nice to know that when we decide to follow, it's not because we're awesome or we've made some great decision, it's simply because we've said yes. We didn't have to seek him out. He comes, he finds us, he says, I choose you. I choose you. Remember, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I believe you can do this. So who do you follow? Who will you seek out? You will follow someone. I will follow someone. Who will it be? Do you want to follow the one who said, I will take care of you. My way is easy. My, my burden is light. I can love you. I want you to love the way I've loved. I've chosen you. Do you want to follow the one that picks you out of the crowd, calls your name and says, come follow me. That's the one I want to follow. That's the one that I'm willing to hike up a crazy hill for in the middle of the heat. He's the one that has loved me, that has cared for me, that has changed and shaped every single day of my life. And now that I know this system, I know a little bit better how to follow him. When I read his words, I think, okay, how can I do that today? Now I fail constantly all the time, daily. Ask my husband. But it's okay, because he chose me, and he thinks I can do it. And by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit, I can. We're going to invite the band up, and we're going to sing a song, just asking again that question of what it might be like to follow Jesus. And I just want to encourage you, wherever you're at along the journey, if you've not yet said yes to this amazing, incredible rabbi who is God himself. If you haven't said yes to him, I just ask that you would prayerfully consider his offer to come follow. And there'll be a community of people who'd love to grab your hand and help us all get up that hill. Amen.